Good morning, everyone. It's good to be here and worship together uh, and to just celebrate and worship our God together around the Lord's table. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, and we'll be looking at the last church uh, in this series, the church at Laodicea. Um, as you know, these are letters written to particular churches, but are applicable to the universal church. And in a sense, all seven letters were written to Hanuich. And so I trust as we've worked through these letters, we've been challenged, we've been convicted, but also we've been encouraged to see that Christ cares for his church. He is intimately uh, uh, passionate about his church, and even us as his people here at Hanuich. And I think, and I agree with Clint, that it's appropriate that we end off uh, on this particular, uh, uh, this particular letter, uh, having just celebrated the Lord's table. Uh, because the, the God that we've just worshipped and in song, and the God we've kind of reflected upon now at the table as he's, he's given his life for us, as we reflect that sacrifice, this message will challenge us by asking us, what now? What will you do in light of all that Christ has done for us as a church? And so I trust that even this morning it would be challenged, but also encouraged as we see the God who cares for us, the Lord Jesus Christ, in all that is done for us. Uh, so let's read our, our passage together, uh, Revelation chapter 3, 14 to 22. This is God's word, hear it. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot cold nor hot, would that, you'd either, would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered and, in need, on, and need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Great and glorious Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you are our God and that we are your people. But we recognize that we are your people not because we deserve it, not because we've earned this favor, not because we have merited this privilege by anything in us. But we recognize that we can call you our God and recognize ourselves as your people because you have loved us. 
you have been gracious toward us. When we were wayward and rebellious, dead in our sin and trespasses, pursuing uh, our sin and the delights of this world and the desires of the flesh, you stepped down to save us. You entered into our humanity in your Son. And you gave your Son as a sacrifice, a pure, perfect sacrifice for us. So that we would be taken out of darkness and be brought into your kingdom of marvelous light. So that we would be your people. So that we would receive mercy and grace. And so that we would be a testimony of that grace. Sacrifices set apart to praise and worship you. And you, Lord, we pray that as we think and consider uh, this particular gospel or this good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that we would respond appropriately even this morning. As we consider this letter to the church at Laodicea, we pray that we would see that same spirit of Laodicea in us and that we would repent, that we would return to Christ, that we would commune with Him as the the, the altogether lovely one, the one who satisfies our souls. And so we pray, dear Lord, meet with us as we now consider your word, as we think and meditate together all, on all that you have done for us. We pray this all in Christ's wonderful and majestic name. Amen. After almost six years away, my wife and myself are back in Joburg. We've been back, as you know, for a few months. And I must say, I'm again struck by how busy life gets here in Joburg. I'm sure you know exactly what I mean. If you look around us, you will see that most people are very busy. With great urgency, they hurry about making the best use of their time because, you know, time is money. With great energy, they labor and toil after various pursuits to achieve various goals. With great fervency, they are vigorously and diligently working to earn a living, to, to, learn, uh, to earn some kind of prosperous living. So if you look around you, you'll see industrious people who are diligently giving themselves to their various pursuits. Whether that is business or pleasure or entertainment or even family. People are industrious. They're pursuing various ends with great diligence. Now, don't get me wrong. This isn't necessarily something that is bad. Many Christians are, are to be commended for their industrious work ethic. But, but the question I, I have is this this morning. Do we have the same energy and urgency and fervency in our spiritual pursuits as we have in our secular pursuits? Are we as industrious in our relationship with Christ as we are in our relationship to this world and the pleasures of this world and the entertainment of this world? Is it safe to assume that we pursue Christ with the same diligence and fervency as we pursue prosperity and rest and joy in this life? 
See, this is where the, the, Laodice, the church at Laodicea finds itself. The city of Laodicea was well known for its wealth, which undoubtedly implies that this was an industrious, hard-working city. We know a few things about the, the city at Laodicea. We know firstly that, that it was on the junction of, of two important trade routes, which means, meant that this was a very busy and bustling city with a lot of, in, in, uh, a lot of business engagement happening. We know secondly also that Laodicea was famous for a particular breed of black sheep and they produced extremely fine wool that was sought after out in the region. And this caused the, this city to be wealthy and prosperous. Thirdly, we know that Laodicea was also well known for a nearby medical school that produced highly sought after uh, compound medicines. And fourthly, we know Laodicea was renowned as a self-sufficient city. In 60 AD, when an earthquake almost flattened the entire city, Laodicea didn't apply to the Roman government for funds which would be expected. Now instead, the citizens of Laodicea rebuilt their own city and they actually improved it. Tacitus, a Roman historian, actually wrote this. He said, Laodicea rose, arose from the ruins by her own strength, of her own resources, with no help from us. See, understanding something of the historical background of this particular city helps us to see that this was a city and a people who were by no means lazy, no means apathetic. No, this was a city filled with industrious people who diligently gave themselves to their secular pursuits. Now, in light of all of this, you would assume, wouldn't you, that this city and the church in this city would reflect the same industrious, diligent work ethic when it comes to the things of God. You would think that when it comes to their spiritual pursuits, they were as energetic and fervent as they were in their industrious uh, secular uh, dealings. Unfortunately, however, that's not the case. In fact, the exact opposite is true. This is not a church that is industrious in its pursuit of Christ. No, this was a church that was in fact indifferent to Christ. This is a church that claimed to be Christians. They claimed the name of Christ. It was a church that saw no need for Christ. A church that did not pursue Christ. That did not bear fruitful witness of Christ. A church that had no real communion with Christ. That's why, as we saw earlier, he's on the outside of this particular church. See, this was a church that Jesus describes as lukewarm. Now, what exactly does that mean? Uh, to be sure, uh, there is some debate about what uh, that means. Some say to be lukewarm refers to their lack of spiritual fervency. That is to say, they were spiritually lazy and apathetic people. They no longer had an earnest zeal and desire for Christ. Their devotion to and worship of Christ was, was heartless. In fact, part of the reason for this was their wealth. See, this was a church that abounded with plenty and in every external and had every external advantage. And therefore, this church thought that they had no need for anything or anyone, including Christ. 
Instead of being fervent for more of Christ, instead of being industrious in its pursuit of Christ, they became indifferent to Christ and, and lived independently of Him. And so the idea is these Laodiceans are lukewarm because they lacked spiritual fervor. Now, others say that they were lukewarm because they lacked spiritual fruit. Jesus says the Laodiceans are lukewarm because they're neither hot nor cold, you see. Now, in the ancient world, hot or cold water had certain connotations. Hot water was viewed as something that is healthy. It had medicinal qualities. And so, too, cold water was able to refresh the body. But see, unlike, unlike being hot and cold, the lukewarm water is, is useless. It has no benefit whatsoever. And so many argue that this was the faith of the Laodiceans. Their Christianity was, was fruitless. It was useless. It had no benefit. Instead of having a healthy effect on those around them, these Laodiceans had an ineffective and unfruitful faith. And so the idea is that they're lukewarm because they're unfruitful, they're ineffectual for the kingdom. Their witness of Christ is poor. Now the question is, which of these two is it? Are they lukewarm because they lack spiritual fervor, or are they lukewarm because they lack spiritual fruit? Well, I think both are true, in fact. I would argue that one flows from the other. They failed to produce spiritual fruit for Christ, because they had grown weary in their pursuit for Christ. They had grown weary in their spiritual fervor and delight in Christ. They were ineffectual in their witness of Christ because they became indifferent in their worship of Christ. And I think there is a, a principle to be learned here, beloved. True spiritual fruitfulness requires, at the very least, True spiritual fervor in following Christ and being faithful to Him. Isn't this, this what we see in John 15 verse 5 where Jesus teaches that whoever abides in me and I in him, he is the one that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. See, see, this seems to be the problem here at Laodicea. This is a church that failed to abide in Christ and therefore failed to abound in works that pleased Christ. I think you see something of this in the description of Christ in verse 14. Jesus mentions three things about himself and all three things, I believe, reveal the failure of the Laodiceans. Firstly, Jesus calls himself the Amen, which means that he's true. But these Laodiceans, in contrast, were false. They claimed the name of Christ, yet Christ and his influence was absent from their lives. They were false witnesses. Secondly, Jesus calls himself the faithful and true witness, but these Laodiceans were faithless witnesses. Why? Because they were known more for their wealth and their prosperity than they actually were known for their worship and devotion to Christ. And thirdly, Jesus says he calls himself the beginning of God's creation. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus is a creature like the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. No, that points out to the fact that Jesus is the one who is the agent of God's creation. He's the one who creates all things and sustains all things and rules and governs over all things. Now, these Laodiceans, instead of looking to Christ as the Lord of creation, they trusted in themselves. They looked to themselves. They relied upon themselves. 
And see, when we take these things together, we see that these Laodiceans lacked spiritual fervor because they looked not to Christ but self. They lacked spiritual fruit because they failed to, to be a witness of Christ. And as a result, they, were ultimately, they ultimately proved themselves to be false Christians. See, that's what's being described here. That's what lukewarmness entails. That's where it ends. Beloved, make no mistake about it. These Laodiceans were fervent people. They were industrious in their pursuits. They were hard at work to earn a prosperous living. Yet when it came to Christ, when it came to the things of God, when it came to their Christian witness, they lacked spiritual fervor and fruit. They were indifferent and proved ineffectual. And beloved, perhaps that might be some of us this morning. Perhaps many of us are, are fervent. Perhaps many of us are industrious in our secular pursuits. Many of us are capable and efficient and hardworking and we earn a prosperous living. Yet when it comes to Christ and the pursuit of Christ, we are indifferent. We're lazy, we're apathetic, we're poor witnesses. We go about playing uh, Christian games and we, we go through the motions. See, our, our fervor in the secular things does not match often our fervor when it comes to our walk with the Lord. In fact, I would suggest that this is a problem that characterizes most churches today. Lukewarmness is an evil pandemic that, is, that has plagued the church long before COVID. Start, John Stott in his day recognized that this, in fact, is the greater uh, issue for most churches. He said, perhaps one, none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the church at the beginning of the 21st century than this church at Laodicea. It describes vividly the respectable, nominal, rather sentimental, skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread among us today. And beloved, let's... Let's be honest, it's so easy for us to become lukewarm. It's so easy for us to, to be heartless in our worship of God. It's easy to, to be mindless as we, we get engaged in the things of God. It's easy to, to be loveless when we relate to the people of God. To be fruitless in our obedience to God. To be directionless in our walk with God. To be senseless when it comes to the expectations that God has for us. See, it's easy to become lukewarm. It's easy to grow indifferent to Christ. And the question is, what does Jesus think of this? What is Jesus' response to a lukewarm church, to lukewarm Christians? And see, that's what I want to look at this morning. That's what I want to consider. I want us to, to walk our way through this letter to see how Christ Response and this response will, will challenge us, but also I trust encourage us. The first thing I want you to see is is, is Christ this. You see that yes, he is discussed. We see in verse fifteen and sixteen, he's he's discussed at a lukewarm church. He says in verse fifteen, "I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold." I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, six miles north of Laodicea, there was the city called Heropolis. 
And in Heropolis, there were these well-known hot springs that were of great medicinal benefit. Unfortunately for Laodicea, uh, by the time that hot springs and that hot water reached them through the various aqueducts, it was often lukewarm and, and dirty. And it's, it's that picture that Jesus is, is clinging onto you because not only was the water lukewarm at Laodicea, but the Christians were lukewarm. And see, Jesus, as you would be discussed by lukewarm water, is discussed by lukewarm Christians. Just as lukewarm water turns the stomach, so lukewarm Christians turns the heart of Christ in disgust. In fact, that word for spit actually means to vomit. It speaks of Christ's utter disgust at lukewarm Christians. It's repulsive to his tastes. Now, if, if lukewarmness is something that, that so disgusts Christ, if it is something that is nauseating to him, that he cannot even keep it in, that he cannot stomach it, then, dear friends, is this not something we should be deeply concerned for? Could it be that he is repulsed by our worship of him because we approach him in a spirit of lukewarmness, with indifference? Now, let's ask a question. Why is he so disgusted by lukewarmness? Why is he he's so repulsed by this indifference to him? Well, I think the answer lies in all that he's done for us in the gospel. See, if the gospel is true, if the gospel is all about Christ's love for us and the fact that he gave his body and blood for us and our salvation then He deserves our warmest love. He deserves our most lively service. But to treat that, to treat His sacrifice with indifference, is to insult Him. It's to trample upon His grace. Think of it this way. Was Christ indifferent about our salvation? Was he lukewarm towards you when he saw you in your sin and came, became a man to save you? Was he lukewarm in his devotion to see the salvation that he went to accomplish for us as he took on our sin upon the tree of Calvary? Was he indifferent? No, yet how often are we not indifferent to him? See, Jesus is disgusted by lukewarmness because it tramples upon his love. It neglects his grace. It forgets all that he has has paid for us. His, His body, his blood shed for us. And so therefore he is rightly disgusted by it. Rightly repulsed by this spiritual indifference to him. So that's the first thing I want you to see and and take note of, that he's disgusted by lukewarmness. Secondly, I want you to see his assessment. His assessment, verse 17, he says, For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. See, as the one who knows all and sees all, Jesus says the true condition of this church. Although in their own eyes they were rich and prosperous, although they were apparently in need of nothing, Jesus reveals their true condition. He reveals that they are in fact riches. 
pitiful wretches at that. Although they may have been known for accumulating great wealth, Jesus says they're actually bankrupt. Although they are known for, for their medicine and their production of these things, they themselves are sick and blind. Although they may be known for producing extravagant clothing, they in fact stand shamefully naked in his sight, covered only in their shameful sin. See, what we see is a church that is woefully wicked and woefully self-deceived. Thinking that it's right with God, yet not. Now, why are they so woefully self-deceived? Well, I think the reason they're so woefully self-deceived is because they're shamefully self-sufficient. Look again at what they say. They say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. See, this is a church self-sufficient in its wealth, a church that is self-satisfied in its accomplishments, a church that is therefore self-deceived. And herein, I would argue, lies the root cause for their lukewarmness. The reason they are indifferent and lukewarm to Christ is because they are self-sufficient people. They were lukewarm in, in their worship of Christ because fundamentally, they thought they needed not Christ. See, just as the city needed no help from their rulers, so this church thought it needed no help from its ruler, the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, let us be aware of the deceiving disease of self-sufficiency. How easy it is for us to become self-sufficient and therefore overlook our desperate need of Christ. And let me say, I say this even to myself, as a pastor, it's easy to, to fall and trust in yourself. You know how to outline, you know how to do this so that you have a lot of theology or a lot of knowledge and you become very self-sufficient. And even as a church, if we are capable professional people, we can carry along ministry in our own strength. So it's easy to be self-sufficient. Now, the good question to ask ourselves, therefore, is, is how can we avoid this self-deception that flows out of this self-sufficiency? How can we not fall into the trap of these Laodiceans by fooling ourselves that we are right with God when, in fact, we are not? How can we put to death this, this self-sufficiency? Well, the answer, I believe, is this. We need to keep before our eyes our desperate need. And so let me ask you, beloved, are you growing this morning in your awareness of your need? Do you, do you see yourself as someone who has needs, who is desperately needy, someone who is in need of grace every moment, every day? Or are you growing in that tendency to rely upon self in your own wisdom, your own strength? Calvin said this way, for men to have no taste for God's power till they are men will have no taste for God's power till they are convinced of their need of it and they immediately forget its value unless they are continually and conditionally reminded by awareness of their own wicked weakness. What he's saying, you want to grow in the awareness of God's power and grace in your life, his sufficiency to sustain you? 
Don't fool yourself into thinking you've made it. Or consider the the counsel of Spurgeon. Spurgeon says the self-sufficiency is Satan's net. Wherein he catches men like poor silly fish and does destroy them. Be not self-sufficient, he says. Think Think of yourself nothing, for you are nothing. And live by God's help. The way to grow strong in Christ is to become weak in yourself. God pours no power into man's heart till man's power is all poured out. Love then daily a life of dependence on the grace of God. Beloved, are you living daily in dependence upon the grace of God? Because if you see your need, if you see how actually you cannot sustain yourself, you'll be amazed at God's continuing grace. So so that's the first, second thing I wanted to see, Christ's assessment of the issue in Laodicea. Third thing I wanted to see this morning is is his counsel uh, to the church at Laodicea. His counsel, verse 18, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. It's important, I think, to note that up until this point, Jesus has been quite harsh. Have you gotten that sense? He's threatened to vomit out this church. He's called them and condemned them as pitiful wretches. Yet at this point, Jesus' tone changes. He addresses them now with compassion. He shows that he actually cares for these pitiful wretches. And this is remarkable, I believe, in light of their lukewarmness. See, this was a lukewarm church that with great indifference cared little for Christ. Yet the fact that, despite the fact that they cared little, we see here that Christ still cares. He's still concerned. He cares so much that he still offers himself to these lukewarm riches. He has told them that they are poor, naked, and blind. He has showed them that they have a great need. And where must they go? Well, he offers them himself. They must come to him so that they would indeed be rich, that they would indeed be clothed and be healed of their blindness. See, they must go to Christ who is pictured here as a wealthy merchant who offers boundless treasures. And I think it's appropriate to ask ourselves these questions. Do you want to be rich, beloved? Do you want to know what true prosperity is? Come to Christ. Come to Christ who is the pearl of great price, who is more precious than anything this world can offer. Come to Christ who is the source of every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Come to Christ who is is filled with unsearchable riches, the riches of grace and forgiveness and mercy. Come to Christ. In fact, Christ who is infinitely rich in and of himself became poor so that by his poverty we would become rich. Do Do you want true prosperity? Come to Christ. Or let me ask you this question. Do you want to be truly clothed? Do you want the shame of your sin removed and covered? Again, come to Christ. 
Christ removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. He is the giver of the He is the giver of garments of salvation. He, he clothes us with His robes of righteousness. So that where there was one shame and guilt and failure, there is now great rejoicing because in those robes of righteousness, the Father looks upon us with, with grace and acceptance and, and love. Do you want to be clothed and be, have your shame removed? Come to Christ. Or let me ask you this question. Do you really want to see do you want to be rid of the blindness that hinders you? You guessed it. Come to Christ. Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the giver of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. He's the way, the truth, and the life that, that no one can come to the Father but through Him. In fact, Christ is where one self-deceived and blind people go in order to see in Him, and when you're in Him, you see that He is a Savior who is able to save you. In Him, you see that you have been called to hope. In Him, you see that you have the riches of a glorious inheritance. Do you want to see? Do you want hope? Come to Christ. This is the point to get here now, beloved, is this. Christ is worthy of your pursuit. In light of the lukewarmness and our indifference to Christ, Christ here offers himself as the one who is of immeasurable worth. Is that how you see Christ this morning? Do you see him as far greater than anything else this world offers? See, when you come to see the treasures to be found in Christ, it becomes the height of foolishness to therefore remain indifferent to him. But notice Jesus says, buy these things from him. Now the language of buying implies, doesn't it, that there's a price to be paid. There is a cost. There is something that needs to be given up. And what is that cost? What is the price? What is that thing you need to give up? Well, it's self. It's that self-sufficiency. It's that self-centeredness that we so easily fall into. Do you remember what Jesus said in, in Luke 9.23? He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. See, to have Christ and all the riches that he alone offers, you need to put self to death. You need to die to self and, and live for Christ. Now, I heard of a... Uh, a story that I think it's Andrew Bonard uh, that told, and I might hash it up, but he, he was sitting with a shepherd and uh, the sheep got out of the crawl and whatever and the sheep went up a mountain and, and while he was there, he asked the shepherd, why aren't you chasing after these sheep who are going to go up this mountain and fall and kill themselves? Well, he said, well, if I go up and chase them, they're going to run away and fall anyway and kill themselves. And see, what I do is I wait until they're so dead tired, then I go pick them up. Well, that's what happens, needs to happen with us. We need to come to the end of ourselves so that we can enjoy Christ, that we can take hold of the blessings and riches that He offers. See, we are only saved and only enjoy Christ when we faint to self, when we die to self and cling to Him. 
This leads me to the next response of Christ uh, to this church, and that is His love. Uh, His love. We see this in verse 19. He says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Here we see that Christ has spoken harshly, that He has fiercely reproved these lukewarm Christians. He has warned them of their spiritual state, ultimately because He loves them. See, it's out of a sincere, tender love that Christ disciplines the church. We know Hebrews 12, 6, that the Lord disciplines those whom He loves. See, this, this should cause us to rejoice. This should cause us to stand in awe of this God who warns us and wounds us because He loves us. In fact, His wounds and warnings are far better than any smiles that any enemy would give you. Thomas Brooks said this, God's corrections are instructions, His lashes are lessons, His scourges are schoolmasters, and His chastisements are admonishments. See, we need to rejoice that God loves us enough to, to discipline us. But, but what we also need to see about Christ's love is that His love calls for response. In fact, there is a twofold response. Firstly, there should be a response of, of zeal. Notice what it says zeal for Christ. And that word zeal essentially means to, to put your heart into it, it means to earnestly and, and fervently commit your whole heart. See, surely this wholehearted zeal is the right response to Christ. If Christ loved us enough to give himself, and if Christ still loves us enough to, to be patient with us, even in our lukewarmness, then surely we should give our whole heart to him. Surely our whole self should be dedicated to him as our Lord and Savior. See, the appropriate response to the love of Christ should be that of John Calvin's motive. John Calvin had this motive. My heart I offer to you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. See, Christ's love demands a response. The first response is zeal for Christ. But secondly, it requires another response, and that is repentance. Now, we might not naturally think that lukewarmness requires repentance, but that only shows how we fail to understand that lukewarmness is a serious sin. This is a wicked evil. Listen to Samuel Davis. He, he wrote an excellent sermon on this. And if you want to hear a good sermon on this particular passage, go listen to that and read that one. But in, in that particular sermon, he says this. Is lukewarmness a proper response toward Christ? Is this a suitable return for that love which brought him down from paradise into our wretched world? That love which for 33 years painfully and tediously kept his mind on one intent, and that is the salvation of sinners? That love which rendered him cheerfully patient of the shame and the curse and the uh, torture of the cross? and the agonies of the most agonizing, painful death, that love which makes him the sinner's friend still in the courts of heaven where he appears to intercede, is that the right response to this love? Beloved, no. In fact, the right response to the love of Christ is an indifference, 
but wholehearted zeal. And anything besides it, anything but wholehearted zeal is a wicked evil that needs to be repented of. And so this calls for a response of zeal and repentance. But to sweeten that deal, to, to motivate greater zeal and repentance, look at what Jesus responds in verse 20. That's the fifth response I want us to see. And that's his offer, verse 20. His offer in verse 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, beloved, this is both beautifully and shocking at the same time. This is shocking because, as we saw earlier, Jesus is actually outside the church. Realizing he isn't speaking to unconverted Gentiles, unbelieving Jews. He is speaking to the church, a church that is indifferent to Christ and has shut Christ out. Now, my favorite promise in Scripture is, is John 6, 37, where, where, where Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, Jesus says, I will never cast out. Yet the sad reality is, although he never casts out, how often do we not cast him out? How often do we not cast him out? And that's exactly what we do, and that's what we're guilty of when we become lukewarm when we are indifferent to Him and self-sufficient in ourselves. We are casting Him out. That's what this verse implies. But, but this verse is not just shocking. It's, it's wonderfully beautiful because it puts on display for us His tender, patient love. Although He's been shut out, although He's been treated with contempt, although He's been neglected and forgotten, He still stands at the door. He still knocks to get your attention. He still offers to come in and fellowship with you. And you realize he, he stands and knocks, not because he needs you, but because you need him. You know what we call that? We call that grace. We might treat him with indifference, but he doesn't treat us with indifference. We might be lukewarm in our relationship to him, but he is not lukewarm in his response to us. Dear believer, perhaps this is where you're at this morning. Perhaps you've been lukewarm in your relationship for some time. Perhaps you've been indifferent to Christ in, his, in your daily pursuits. Perhaps you're more excited about this world than the things of this world. And if that is perhaps you this morning, know this. Jesus still offers himself to you. Jesus still wants to come and commune with you. He, he still desires to share himself and his infinite blessings with you. But you also need to know this. You need to open the door. You need to yield your life to Him. You need to respond with faith and repentance. And if you do, He promises to come in and dwell with you. Even wretched, pitiful, lukewarm Christians. That, that leads me to my final thing I want you to see this morning. And that's His response in verse 21. It's the one who conquers, he says, I'll grant him to sit with me on my throne, as also I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. See, if by renewed faith we heed this call, if we conquer our lukewarmness, then Jesus promises to exalt us. And not just that He will exalt us to be with Him, but He, will, he promises to exalt us with Him, with the Father. That is to say, this is a promise that if we conquer, if we respond with faith, we will be with and reign with Christ, with the Father. Beloved, isn't that what salvation is all about? Isn't Jesus' whole plan of redemption to reconcile us to the Father? Isn't the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection about purchasing a people to give to the Father and present to the Father in splendor? Isn't eternal life all about knowing both the Father and the Son? See, the promise of verse 21, as with all the promises to the seven churches, this is a promise of eternal life. That's what's being offered to you here. The one who conquers is the one who has the promise of eternal life. In fact, all the one another, all the one who conquered promises that we see in these seven churches all point us to the final promise in Revelation 21 7, where Jesus says to the one who conquers, the one who conquers will have this inheritance. What is that inheritance? What is that heritage? It is the new heavens and the new earth, eternal life where we will be with God as His people. And now the fact that Jesus ends with this promise tells us, if it wasn't clear already, that lukewarmness is a salvation issue. If you stay in a state of lukewarmness, Jesus promises to vomit you out. He promises to to, uh, stop you from entering into His presence with His Father. But if you overcome, if you conquer this lukewarmness, if you stop being indifferent to Him, if you return to Him, if you open your life and yield it again to Him, He promises that you will enjoy the heritage that, is all this, that, that belongs to the saints. And that is the gift of eternal life, that blessed life with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so, dear believer, in light of this promise, do you see how serious lukewarmness is? Do you see what is at stake if you stay indifferent to Christ? Make no mistake about it, we are industrious people. We give ourselves head, heart, hands uh, to various pursuits. But should we also not, with all of who we are, head, heart, hands, also not give ourselves to the pursuit of Christ? Unfortunately, many don't. Unfortunately, most care more for their mortal bodies and are careless about their immortal souls. Most care more for their temporal pursuits, care more for, for, for worldly joys than taking part and having heavenly happiness. Most are anxious to avoid poverty and shame and sickness and pain and are indifferent to the reality of life to come, whether in eternal life with Christ in heaven or eternal darkness separated from Christ. And so, beloved, where are you this morning? To the cold this morning, that is, to the unbeliever, 
having heard this morning about Christ, about His sacrifice, the fact that this eternal Son of God became a man to save a sinner like you, will you remain indifferent to Him? Will you hear this good news of a Savior who, who loved as a sinner like you, and will you remain indifferent? I plead with you if you're an unbeliever, come to Christ, put your faith in Him, be saved. But to the lukewarm this morning, that is, to the indifferent believer, having heard of Christ's response to you this morning, will you remain indifferent to your sin? Will you be content with being indifferent to Christ? Will you be satisfied with small, meager dealings with Christ? Or will you repent of that and take hold of Christ, take hold of all the blessings that He offers you even this morning? And to the hot this morning, the, the fervent Christian, having heard the word of the faithful and true witness, that is Christ, Will you add greater fervor or greater fruit to your fervor? Will we not as a church pursue greater faithfulness to this Christ? Keeping and watching and praying that we would not grow indifferent, but grow more industrious for the kingdom, for the sake of Christ who, who loved us and gave himself for us. And so I trust that this would challenge us, but also encourage us that we serve a mighty Savior and where we give ourselves wholeheartedly to Him. Let's pray. Great and glorious Heavenly Father, we come before You thankful that You are not silent, thankful that you have spoken very clearly in your word, thankful that you have sent your Son to be our Redeemer, to save us, to reconcile us. And thank you that you love us enough to warn us, to point out our sin, to point out our failures. And we pray that this morning we would heed this call that we would be weary of this self-deceiving lukewarmness that so easily takes root in the church. And we pray, dear Lord, rather that we would instead pursue Christ more wholeheartedly, that we would see Christ as that soul satisfaction that we all naturally crave for, and that we would come to Him and take and be satisfied in Him. Help us in this. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us our failures. Fashion and transform us again to desire Christ. Help us in this, we pray. We can do nothing but ask you to send your Spirit and revive us, we ask. In Christ's name, amen.